Good morning, Three Rivers Church. Pray with me. Father, we this morning come before you as a body of believers, followers of Jesus Christ, this morning recognizing that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and you sit over us and you rule over us by your Spirit. And so we want to confess to you, and and if not physically in our hearts, we bow the knee in submission to your Lordship over us now and over this time. So, Holy Spirit, we ask you to be counselor, helper, teacher, guide to truth, cause your word to be alive and active and to produce the fruit of the kingdom. We pray against the effects of the evil one. We pray against that dark kingdom and ask that the kingdom of light would rule in this room now. We pray and submit this to you in Jesus name. Amen. Acts 20, verse 17 to 38, we're going to look at Paul's final charge to the church at Ephesus. Paul has literally invested blood, sweat, and tears in the work of the gospel. That's not figurative for Paul, that is quite literal. The glorious good news of the gospel... We've taught you to articulate it this way, and I want to remind us of it this morning because it is it is key here in this passage. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. You can repeat those after me. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. There is one God, there aren't many gods. And this one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And He's the creator of all things. And He being good and kind and gracious and creative, out of the overflow of His nature, made everything that is. And at the apex of that creation, He made mankind in His image as special creatures who would bear the mark of what it looked like to be God. But mankind rebelled against God. And He, in that rebellion, brought upon Himself and all of created order death. So that everything broke, the earth broke, the dirt broke, the air broke, animals broke, and we broke. Our wills broke. Our relationship with God was broken. But God being rich in mercy, and part of His foreordained, determined plan to put on display His grace as well as His justice, sent the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who came and He took on flesh... And He took on us all of that brokenness, all of that sin. And He went to a Roman cross. And there He was crucified by God to execute justice for our sins, past, present, and future. And He was put in a grave. And on the third day, He gloriously arose, securing salvation for all who would repent and believe. And He ascended into heaven where He sits at God's mighty right hand and sent the Holy Spirit to indwell all of those who repent and believe the gospel. That's the good news of the King. Kingdom. That message is the message that Paul preaches. It's the message he has bled for, sweated for, and shed tears over. This glorious good news of the gospel of the kingdom makes disciples. It does so in every domain of society. And from that, the church grows, multiplies. And Jesus has sent his church with this good news to disciple the nations. By going, baptizing, and teaching obedience to Jesus. This work of the kingdom has really cost Paul a great deal. The gospel of the kingdom is always free to the receptor. But the gospel of the kingdom is never free for the giver. I need to chew on that one a little bit. The gospel costs the father his son... It costs the Son His life. And it costs us who take it the price of laying down our agendas, our priorities, and even perhaps our lives by taking up that cross and following Jesus in obedience. So whether you go to the foreign field, or whether you lay down your agenda on your job or in your home, there is a cost to the gospel. Paul has received the love of God in the gospel of the kingdom. And he freely gives the love of God out in the proclamation of the gospel and the practical service of Jesus' church. And we see that epitomized in Acts twenty, seventeen to 38, where Paul 
loves the church and freely gives that love out in the form of instruction. So what we're going to see in the text today is Paul's passionate final teaching opportunity for his Ephesian children in the faith. Because they are the products of the good news of the kingdom. They are the fruit of his ministry. And he loves them. He has freely given and freely taken on him the burden of the gospel. And that love pours itself out one final time in some amazing teaching. And we see it in a threefold manner here. Number one, we're going to see Paul's reflection on the past. And then we're going to see number two, Paul's instruction for the present. And number three, we're going to see Paul's teaching for the future. So what do we see? What does it mean? Let's look at that first part of the instruction. Paul reflects on the past. Now, one of the things about narrative, when you're reading narrative portions of the Bible, it's not always like reading a letter. Like if you read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Ephesians, there's a logical, orderly flow to the paragraphs. When you're reading narrative, that's not the way narrative is written. Narrative is narrative, not letter. And they're two different genres. And so when you teach through narrative and you read it, you look through themes and you find the themes and you put them together to help you understand them. So as we look through Paul's reflection on the past, it doesn't come in like the first three verses, nice and neat. His past reflection is scattered all throughout the passage. Does that make sense? And so if you're looking at the notes with me, you'll see that Paul's reflection on the past comes in verse 18 to 21. You're going to see that he reflects on the past in verse 26 and 27. You're going to see him reflect on the past in verse 31. And you're going to see him reflect in the past on verse 33 to 35. So let's take a look at those passages. I'll read them, make some observations. First reflection on the past, verse 18 to 21. Now, as a setup, verse 17 tells us Paul sailed past Ephesus. Now, if you remember last week, Paul's headed to Jerusalem. He's been collecting this offering for the saints in Jerusalem from the Gentile churches where the ministry has been taking place. And they are delighted to share in the ministry to the saints in Jerusalem as God has constructed his church from two people who were formerly separate. And now they're one. There's the one new man. And they're delighted to give to the Jew and the Jew to the Gentile and serve one another. So they've been taking up an offering. And he's going to relieve the famine of the saints in Jerusalem. So he's in a hurry. He's on mission to get to Jerusalem. So he sails past Ephesus and then calls for the elders because Paul... Loving the Ephesian church, if he goes to Ephesus, he's going to get stuck again, maybe another three years. And so he sails past the city. They come to this particular location in Miletus, and he sends for the elders of the church at Ephesus to come and meet him there on the beach. And Paul begins to reflect on the past, verse 18 to 21. And he says this, And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Testifying to both the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 26 and 27. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent Of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then he tells us in verse 31. Therefore be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease. Night or day. To admonish everyone with tears. And look at verse 33 to 35. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know these hands ministered to my necessities. And to those who are with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Paul reflects on the past. So what are some observations in Paul's reflection on the past we can make from the text? Number one, Paul reminds the church at Ephesus of his uncompromising work. Paul's work among the Ephesians has been absolutely uncompromising. Notice twice he uses this word shrink. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you. This word shrink is very interesting because it refers to a sale 
on a ship that has been lowered. That kind of makes sense, right? Because Paul is sailing on a ship and he's pulled up on a beach and they have come to him at the beach. And so in the context of where he's at, he uses an analogy that's right in front of their eyes. A lowered sail. And Paul says, like that sail has been lowered and is ineffective and catches no wind. That's not what I did when I was among you. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you, what? The whole counsel of God. Verse 20 is not a prescriptive strategy. This is Paul's practice of really Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. In other words, Paul is not saying each of you should go house to house to house to house to house and preach to one another. Remember, Paul's a student of the text. And never does Paul in his ministry leave the text of Scripture. You look at Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. This is referred to as the Shema. The hear, listen to what God says to His people. Here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk with them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And what Paul is telling them is, everywhere we were together, I lifted the sail on the ship and caught the wind of the Spirit and opened the text to you and I taught you God's Word. Paul reminds them of the uncompromising work of preaching to them God's counsel. I love this beautiful statement here. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. If it was good for your soul, I laid it before you. I lifted the sails that the Spirit of God may catch and blow on your life because you are my spiritual children. And everywhere we were, we lifted the sail to catch the truth of God. So Paul reminded him of his uncompromising work of the gospel. Secondly, in verse 26 and 27, we see Paul reminds him of his faithful work. He says here, therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He has been faithful to lay before them absolutely everything, withhold nothing. One of the things I find absolutely amazing, we'll talk about applications in just a moment, so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But it's fascinating to me in the church, we're afraid to address things because it may be offensive to people. We don't want people to leave because people leave, they don't drop checks in the box. If they don't drop checks in the box, then we can't get paid. That was not Paul's ministry. Paul said that he laid before them the full, whole counsel of God. If it's beneficial... If it was kingdom, he laid it out. And you notice, he did so with tears. Why? Because it was a passionate issue. It was a serious issue. And I have no doubt that it cost Paul a great deal to preach the truth. So Paul's ministry was uncompromising. It was faithful to the Word of God. Third, verse 33 to 35, Paul reminds him of his unselfish work. Paul worked Hard. I want to go back and preach two sermons ago. But the reason God allowed the Ephesians to be healed when other Ephesians brought his sweaty work clothes and his work aprons and touched people with them is because of the unselfish, hard-working labor of this apostle who loved Jesus and gave everything he had, blood, sweat, and tears. And God condescended to where they were to meet them where they were because Paul laid it out. His unselfish work. As a matter of fact, Paul will tell the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God. He will tell the other churches, imitate me as I imitate Jesus Christ. I want to say this to you, and I want to say this without flinching, and I want to say this without any reservation. Your pastors are like that. Imitate them. There's no slack in your pastors. This church wasn't planted on a full-time salary. It was planted working three jobs. 
Emmett worked three jobs often. I worked three jobs often. Your pastors now, apart from me, all work other jobs and do other things. They labor for the sake of the gospel in their workplace and among the lost and among yourselves, training, equipping, and organizing. You imitate that. Paul reminded them of his unselfish work. And he will say to those Ephesians, as we have imitated God, you imitate God. He even ends this instruction here in verse 33 to 35 when he says that they are not to shut out the weak, not to shut down the weak, work with their hands. And the reason they're to do so, he says, is remembering the Lord Jesus, how he himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I want to read a note that I put here because it's a little side note of nerddom, if you will, and just indulge me for a moment. But, But there's also a very important thing to be observed here. Luke, writing Acts here, is quoting, if you look in your little notes there, uh, in your Bible, and if you can see the note, if you're looking on the blog, you can see the very note that I put here. But that statement, and, and it, depending on if you got a Bible where the words of Jesus are in red, right? That, that statement's in red. And if you look at the little letter beside it that points you to the little reference in the margin, it will tell you this is from Mark, I mean Matthew chapter 10 verse 8. Matthew 10, verse 8 says, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Now you notice what Luke says is not what Matthew 10, 8 says. What Luke is doing is he is exegeting, he is expositing Jesus' teaching that you got it for free, give it out for free. Thus, It is more blessed to give than receive. Blessed means the mark of having the fullness of God. So to give away is evidence. One has all of God they can handle. And therefore they have to be a giver. Don't think money here. It is so easy for us in a Western mindset to read on to passages like that money and monetary things. And that's not what the worldview of the text is. Don't think money here. Think like the text. Think of the context. Think of the church at Ephesus. Think power from God to do supernatural work. Remember two sermons ago when the church at Ephesus was planted? How they were ministering the spiritually charged environment and God was so powerful at work. He was healing people. And they were convicted, even those who were Christians, because of the power of God to come and bring the things that were still in the dark, secret things, to the center of the, the city and burn them because they were still practicing occultic things. Think about the power of God to do supernatural work. Thus, helping the weak as Luke records Paul teaching. But the purpose of this note is to draw your attention to the fact, and here's my this is my scholarship coming out, and I want to share it with you, is to draw your attention to the fact that Luke is referring to Matthew. Now this is this is big. So Matthew was already in writing or completed. And if we're here in the middle of Paul's journeys, we're in the 50s A.D. Jesus' ministry ended in the 30s A.D. Thus, the evidence of Jesus' historical reality is within 20 years of His death, burial, and resurrection. And if you don't know why that's important, think about what you remember. In other words, Matthew was already writing and recording all that Jesus said and did. Now remember, this is with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's not like they were going to forget. But in the world of scholarship, it matters. When you're talking about how accurate Bible texts are, the closer you get to the original, the more accurate. Luke's quoting Matthew, which puts Matthew possibly in the 50s or maybe before the 50s. Now that's debatable in some scholarship circles, but it won't be here. Because it's right there. He's quoting Matthew. Isn't that awesome? So what we have here is Luke quoting from a reliable source what Jesus said and did, making application to the church at Ephesus. Boom. 
That's fun, right? So Paul says, man, I have given you everything I have. I have given you my life. Don't forget it. So he's reflecting on the past. Now, then he comes to the present. Secondly, Paul instructs the Ephesians for the present situation. Verse 22 to 25, verse 28 and 32. This is what he says. And now, that's how we know he's talking about the present. And now, because now is present, right? Got it? And now, present situation. Ephesus, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Holy Spirit. Not knowing what will happen to me. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And then verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul instructs them for their present situation. Here in verse 22 to 23, Paul explains how the Spirit has made clear that difficult challenges are ahead. So Paul takes this glorious opportunity that lies ahead of him to be an illustration, an example for them on how to listen. He says, the Holy Spirit has constrained me. Notice his language. Constrained by the Spirit. Not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that He, Holy Spirit, testifies to me in every city. That imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul lets them know the Holy Spirit's made Himself clear. He has taught me. He has instructed me. He gives them living example of what it's like to hear and obey. He's constrained. Now, this is a place we could really bog down and spend the rest of our time. And I'm not going to do that now. I just want to lay this on you. I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to be your teacher. But Paul was listening. And although the message he heard was not pleasant, he was still moved by the mission such that he sailed past Ephesus. Had the elders meet him so he could get there quicker. Paul was in a hurry to obey the Holy Spirit regardless of what it cost him. So he explains how the Spirit has made this clear that there are difficult challenges ahead. And he lives in front of them the example of what it is to obey regardless of the cost of his own life. So he still, as spiritual father to spiritual child, showing them how to follow Jesus. Next thing we notice here in verse 24 is that Paul explains how the goal is to complete the mission, not save his own life. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, the grace of God. Not about saving my life. I gotta finish the course. Oh, for a rich church environment where it's not about getting and preserving, but laying down. Taking up our cross and following Jesus, regardless of what it costs us. Third thing we notice here in verse 28. Paul instructs the leaders to keep themselves in check and lead the church well. Listen to what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourself. He's going to tell them why here in just a second. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Because in a moment he's going to let them even from your own number. Some of you standing here on the beach. You're about to kneel and pray over me with tears. And some of you are going to introduce false teachings into this fellowship. So he says to them, pay close attention to yourselves. The implication is they're in the manual and their thoughts aren't going this way and that, pursuing things that are untrue because it's novel or fun or light and fluffy or airy or for that matter, falsely heavy. Pay careful attention to yourselves. So he instructs those leaders to keep themselves in check and then to lead the church well. Notice what he says. Ooh, I got off the text. My Bible flipped pages because I was excited. 
I, I look down, I'm like, that's Habakkuk. Wait a second. We're in Habakkuk. What does he say to them here? Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to what? To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Pay careful attention to yourself and your church. Meaning, what are they believing? What are they believing? What are they listening to? You know, it was a little easier back in the day because someone in the church at Ephesus wasn't a mega church. It wasn't a simple house church either, like possibly the church at Philippi. But these elders were to have an ear to the ground, paying attention to what people are listening to and what they're integrating into their living. The reality is they were more than likely observing their behaviors and recognizing false teachers because here's the reality, y'all. Information produces action. There's no such thing as informationless data. Every piece of information has a bent and an intention to it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be floating around to enter your ears. Everything you see, everything you hear, has a mission. It's purpose-driven. And it is there to bend your behaviors in one direction or another, whether to buy this product or that product, or to stop this and begin that. And they were able to observe their people and recognize what have you believed. It is partly our job to recognize your behaviors and address the false teachings that enter your ears. Paul instructs these leaders in this moment, guys, you've got to keep a check on yourself. You've got to keep a check on the church. How are they to do that? Look back at verse 27. He's going to tell them. And then you can look forward to 29 to 30. Verse 27 says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. One of the ways we keep ourselves in check, keep us in check as a church, is we open the Bible and we teach from it. I'm super excited after we finish with Acts. Josh down there and up here, we're going to be teaching through 16 weeks of summarizing the Bible. 16 different passages of Scripture, one verse that will help us put the narrative of the Bible together in the cohesive meta-narrative of the Gospel. So as we launch into Genesis, which will be about a 58-week study, you're going to have the whole story of the Bible put together so that you can see how the stories of the Bible fit together. Not just isolated little moral stories. Listen, David and Goliath is not... And I want you to listen. I want you to listen. Listen. If you're on your device or doing something else, I want you to hear this right here. We have pillaged David and Goliath. David and Goliath is not about you conquering your giants and you making up whatever your giant is. My Goliath is 285. And I can get it up. That's not... What David and Goliath is about, about you slaying your life's giants. That's an abuse of the text. David and Goliath is about reminding you that God is faithful to the promise He made to Abraham. And He will keep it even if all hell stands in its way. He can make rocks fly to foreheads from children. Because He made a promise to Abraham and those who are in the line of Abraham, He will keep it. And guess who you are? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And so are you. So let's... You know why? Because the Gospel makes all those who are of the faith of Abraham children of Abraham. Therefore, God keeps His promise to His people. And all things that get in the way of God's people, He removes. That's the point of the story. That's how you read David and Goliath and walk away going, we can disciple the nations because we're children of the promise. He removed all obstacles from children of promise. So he'll remove obstacles from us. So let's go. That, that's the point of the story. But what we do is we believe lies. No, no, no. God cares about safety first. How dare us put ourselves in a dangerous situation? No. Risk be darned. We... We go! Because we're children of Abraham! He keeps His promise to His people. So let's get after it. Right? So 
So we're to pay attention to what are you doing? Are you engaging your domain? If not, you've bought a lie that somehow church is over here, my life's over here, and they never blend to go together. If you're isolated from the fellowship, you've bought a lie. This is one of the reasons we're continuing to bring the emphasis of radical life groups and the spiritual gifts practiced together because you can't be isolated from the church and be in the church. That practically doesn't even make sense. Right? And so Paul was instructing leaders, keep a watch on yourselves and shepherd the people of God. Because you can see in verse 29 and 30, I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So there are going to be some people who come from the outside, and he describes them as wolves. What do wolves do? Wolves prey on the weak. Wolves never take on animals that can beat them. Wolves look for the ones that are lagging behind. Wolves look for the injured. And when they are away from the group, this is like shepherding fact, right? Philip Keller, Psalm 23, read it. It's out of print. You can get it on Amazon. Philip Keller, not Tim Keller, different Keller. Philip Keller, Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm. We read things like, why are you cast down, O my soul? David wrote that, right? And we think cast down like my soul's been thrown down to the ground. That No, cast down is shepherding language. And to be cast means to be fallen down and unable to get up. I've fallen and I can't get up. That's what cast down means. And so when David says, why are you cast down? He says, why is my soul fallen to the ground and incapable of standing? Because David's a shepherd and David's using shepherding language to describe what's happening in his soul. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He takes the cast down soul and lifts it up. Right? And so, fierce wolves. And so this, this idea of wolves, this, this is shepherding language. And wolves prey on the weak. And he calls the false teachers wolves. Therefore, they're going to come in and not pray. They're not going to pray on the person who's walking with Jesus, reading their Bible in fellowship. They're going to prey on the one who's straggling behind, whose lives are somewhere else over here, focused on other things. They're going to find that weak person, they're going to eat them for lunch and turn them into a disciple of the kingdom of darkness. Paul says, you've got to watch for that. You've got to watch for that. Watch yourselves, watch for them. And then finally here, as he looks to the present, look at verse 32. Paul commits the church to God. <laughs> this is going to be so hard not to bog down here. Oh, so hard. And his word that contains the message of grace. Verse 32. And now I commend you to God. What does commend mean? Commend means to hand over. I, I hand you over. I, I, I hand you over to God and to the word of his grace. Word of His grace, that, that is, okay, it's so hard not to bog down. The Word of His grace. Word and grace don't stand in what's called apposition to one another grammatically. In other words, word and grace, when you have an of between words, that can kind of be tricky grammatically. Because sometimes the two words are defining each other. That's called apposition. Sorry. But sometimes, sometimes they're describing, right? And in this instance, they're not defining one another. Grace is the content of the Word. Does that make sense? No, word isn't grace. Grace isn't word. He's saying the content of the word, the content of the message is grace. And when we hear grace, we have a tendency to define grace culturally as God not judging me. That's not what the word grace means. In this setting or most other settings, it's used in two ways. One, to describe the spiritual gifts. The grace of God, the gifts of God. And the other times grace is spoken of, it's speaking of the power of God. And so let's do a little Paul here. Romans 1.16. What is the power of God for salvation? Do you know Romans 1.16? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, everyone who believes. So when Paul talks about the word that contains the message of grace... The power of God. What is the power of God for salvation? Say it. The gospel. So Paul says, I'm commending you to God in this powerful message of the kingdom that will save you. So he's handing them over to God who is their shepherd. 
in his absence, obviously, but even when he's present, the Lord is my shepherd. And to this word, this powerful gospel, and notice what he says about the gospel, which is able. This word able is a fun word. It's the word we get dynamite from, dunamai. means this gospel is able. <laughs> it's able. It's able. It's powerful to do what? To build you up and give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. This word, by the way, this is the gospel right here in all of its glorious detail. And in summary, how I stated it to you at the beginning. Paul commits the church to God and His powerful Word that is able to build them up and to make sure they receive the inheritance of the kingdom. This is one of the reasons we teach you in your radical life groups. Make sure as you walk through that five-fold pattern that there is a time of teaching and reflection on. This is why we preach from the Bible and put notes up. So if you ever wonder, you can go back, oh, here's the notes, here's the Scripture reference. And so you can open that up and you can, you can, you can look at that again. You can walk through that. This is why we encourage you to read your Bible so that as God is teaching you in His Word, you can teach one another. Because this Word, this Gospel message of the Kingdom of God is powerful and able to build you up. And it's able to make sure you receive the inheritance. And then Paul, verse 29 to 30, he instructs the Ephesians about the future. Verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. And here's the purpose of the twisted things, comma, purpose clause two, to draw away the disciples after them. Listen, false teachers never, ever, 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 I don't care what anybody says or what they say, are there blindly and foolishly. There is always an intention in false teaching to draw people away from the gospel. If it's untrue, its intent is to draw people away. This is where often I, I get, uh, I, this is not in the notes, and I was sharing jo- with Joseph, uh, we were chatting uh, Friday morning, uh, and uh, I, I, uh, I'm wired for truth. I don't think if you if you haven't noticed, there's not a lot of gray in my theology. There are places where there's room for gray, but by and large, I'm a truth-driven individual. One of my strengths is is values, beliefs. Right? I'm driven by a set of values. Those values will drive me to my death. I live by them. I operate by them. I think by them. I work in them. And that comes out in things I say. I'm a little bit passionate. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but I'm just a wee bit passionate. Just a little bit. And I write things because I don't have time to be in front of you seven days a week. I would like to be. If if you'd gather seven days a week and listen, I would gather seven days a week and teach you. Not a problem. So I write stuff and I put it out there. And roughly... Per month, about 900 to 1,000 people from 26 different countries read. And that's pretty cool. But what's even cooler (laughs) is that those things that are there confront idols. One of my favorite statements, I don't say it a lot in front of you, is when you poke an idol, it squeals. And my intention, even in stated purpose, if you go to the about section on the block, it says about, and you click that little link, it says to sharpen our focus, to help us sharpen our focus down on the kingdom of God. So I'm going to put things in, in order to sharpen something, you got to grind off the rough edges. So my purpose in writing is to grind off idolatrous edges. And you would be shocked at things I don't approve comment-wise, because the comments have to come to me before I post them, take crazy stuff. I'm like, mm, somebody might be okay reading that. And sometimes it's like, they're going to not heaven. And so, boom, don't approve that, right? And so, <laughs> false teaching is always there to, to remove, to take away, to intentionally pull from what's right. And in order to combat false teaching, there is a requirement... There's a requirement 
that we stay on the truth. And even if it angers and causes idols to squeal, you keep poking. It is not loving to allow people to stay in the darkness and go to hell. There's no love in that. It may feel good to be liked by everybody all the time. It may feel good when nobody challenges the truth. But it isn't loving. You know I get the most pushback? From Christians. There are people from other religions, 26 different countries, who read that thing. I get comments from them going, thank you for that truth. And the same blog, Christians write and want me to die. Why is that? Because I don't squeal loudly. Fierce wolves will come in among you. And my fear is they've just bought the lie. And they're no different from those who are really, truly outside the kingdom. Three of His church. That will not be us. Will not be us. We're not governed by our culture. We're not governed by the United States of America. We're not governed by political parties. We're not governed by anything other than the Word of God. And it rubs me hard every day. It puts hard edges off of me every day. I am so not there yet. And so when I read the manual and it confronts my idols, my idols squeal. But my role as a follower of Jesus is to hear and obey. Our role as pastors is to put the truth in front of you that you'll hear and obey, to guard you from wolves who would rather you not know and go to hell. And Paul warns them, this is a real thing. So be aware. My fear, my greatest fear, you want to know my greatest fear? My greatest fear that false teaching will come out of this church. That's the thing that wakes me up at night. What do you believe? What are you telling others we believe? What do we in our living condone? And then what do people look back on us and say we condone and then say Jesus condones? You know what I'm saying? It matters, it matters, it matters. And so I want you to know from me and from your pastors, we want to guard you from those wolves. Which means there are going to be times we say hard things. There are going to be times we lead hardly because we need to plow through things and get to the kingdom. This Paul lets them know this is going to happen, so beware. Jesus Matthew seven fifteen to 20, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. This is why Paul used the language of wolf. He's just studying from Jesus. He said, You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are gates gathered, or gr- gates, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? That's a rhetorical question. Of course they're not. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, and a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus, you'll recognize them by their fruits. What's the fruit of your thinking? Right? What's the fruit of the thinking? We have to be aware of that. Myself and all of us. So, how do we obey? How do we take what Paul said and, and put it to obedience? How do we practice it? What's the application? Number one, three of church, we need to be people who love well. Paul loved these people. And I would say... No love properly. You want to start understanding love? Start with 1 John. God is love. You want to know what love is? No God. Open your Bible. Learn the nature and character of God. And that will define love for you. Love is not a positive, warm feeling toward. There's a great book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God by D.A. Carson. It's about that thin. It's a super thin book. You can read it. Real easy to read. Love is not as simple as a positive emotion toward. Example. Let's say a um, couple and one spouse cheats on the other spouse, commits adultery. The offended spouse is not going to be happy. Why? 
Because love has been violated. And precisely because they loved, their love manifests itself as anger. Anger is not absent of love. Often anger is a direct result of love. If you know this or not, I don't get a little psychological on you. Love is a secondary emotion. I mean, uh, anger is a secondary emotion. And anger shows up precisely because a prior emotion has been violated. When the Bible talks about God being angry, it's not because God fails to love. It's precisely because He does love and that love has been spurned by my rebellion. And His anger is taken out on the cross where Jesus took the consequence of my sin. And so we look up on the cross, we say that's love, don't we? But we also need to recognize that's also God's wrath poured out toward my sin. Which is why if I come under Christ through repentance and faith, I never get wrath. I only get the positive side of love. Does that make sense? We need to love each other well. And love doesn't look like always putting up a fake front where we just say nice things even though we don't mean them. Love means loving each other through thick, through thin, in truth, and in all ways, in full knowledge. So we have to be people who love well, which means we lovingly sometimes have to confront with the truth. That's not absent of love. That is love practiced well. It means we care for each other through thick and through thin. We make time for each other. We need to love well. And you remember what's going to happen to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation, how they're going to get addressed by Jesus? The church at Ephesus, you have left. Your first love. Love well. Love each other. Love the gospel. Do not swerve from either. Number two, we must never lower the sail when it comes to teaching the whole counsel of God. Never lower the sail through research. Never lower the sail. Never shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. It's interesting. Uh, with the 21 days of connection that's been going on, folks from pastors from various churches and all denominations and backgrounds and gathering to pray, and that's kind of awesome. Except when you get a letter from one of the churches who condones like homosexual pastors talking about how we all agree and we're all going the same direction, and then my heart's like going inside, going, "No, we're not." That no, that's that's lowering the sail. There's no. Unity is only had when you're going in the same direction. Does that make sense? You, you can't have unity when you're going opposite directions. That's the very opposite of unity. Never lower yourself when it comes to the whole counsel of God. Never sacrifice the truth for fake fellowship. It's one of the things we teach in our church planner training, KDSC. How to partner. How do you partner? Good partnership starts with common vision. Common vision creates relationships. Relationships leads to collaboration. Collaboration can start an organization, start a family. Right? And so, never lower the sail. This is the manual. It's the manual. It's true. Uncompromisingly true. Never lower the sail. Number three, let's be a church that is a church of givers, not takers. Paul said here, quoting Jesus, work hard, provide, care for the weak. Why? Because Jesus said it's better to give than to get. Be a church of givers, not takers. Give financially. Your money's not yours. You're a manager of God's resources. All money belongs to God. And if we spend the great majority of it on ourselves and give none of it to God, we're thieves, liars, and do not care about the kingdom of God. That's an idol in America, money, in case you hadn't noticed. Money rules the show. The reality is we need to be a church of givers. But be a giver not just of money. Be a giver of yourself. If you are not involved in the life of other three of us people, serving their needs, exercising spiritual gifts for them, you are taking and not giving. Don't come to be a taker of teaching and a taker of a worship service and never a giver back. Number four, let's commit to finish the mission that's been given without flagging and passion for the mission. Glory of God, discipling the nations, and our means is the radical life. Up, in, and out. So let's not back down to the mission. The nations haven't been reached. God hasn't been glorified among all people, so we keep hammer down, foot on the pedal, going hard with the gospel to the nations. 
pastors, interns, number five, pastors, interns, and future leaders care for this church by teaching and protecting from false teaching by holding to the word of the gospel. Listen, leadership. We need to be teachers of the word. Hold the word up. Use the word. Don't give it a fake reading before every meeting just as a token, hoping God will like. Don't use it as like a token, right? Let let the word. This is one of the things I always find interesting. You know, it, it, some people just use the Bible as sort of that good luck charm. If we read it before a meeting, it has nothing to do with what you read about the meeting. It's better to run the meeting without reading the Bible, but run the meeting on the principles of the Bible than it is to read the Bible before the meeting and do something completely opposite of what the Bible teaches. You know what I'm saying? In other words, don't use the Bible as a token. It should inform every fabric of our being so that everything we do smells like Scripture. Does that make sense? Whether you read it beforehand or not. Does that make sense? So pastors, leaders, interns, anyone who's interested in wanting to grow in church ministry. Scripture, we got to smell like the Bible. Number six, hide the word deep in your heart so you might not sin. And so you can know the difference between wolves and sheep. Then finally, we need to deal harshly and swiftly with the wolves and love the sheep well. That's Paul's final instruction to the church at Ephesus. And you know what I want to challenge you with this morning? It's not in the notes. Um, The Lord just reminded me this week when we were gone about worship. Um, We... Singing to the Lord is an issue of obedience, not preference. I was doing a little study, and I'm not going to blow you away. I'm not going to give you, like, words and names and how many times they show up in the Bible. But over a hundred times-ish, you're commanded in the Bible to sing. It's an issue of obedience. Now, we need to do a good job of leading you. But it is our responsibility in obedience to sing to Jesus. You know we're the only world's religion that practices song like that? <laughs> I'm going to say, go out on a limb here and say that's because we're right. And this commands it. So I just want to say to you, if you're not a pretty singer like me, some of you can sing like Adam, that's awesome. Enjoy making beautiful songs. If you're like me, scream it. It doesn't matter if you're on key or in tune when you're scream singing. So just scream it. And if you're one of the unlucky ones who happen to be in front of me, I'm sorry, kind of. But take it up with Jesus. I am going to scream sing because the Bible tells me to sing to the Lord. And you know what we, What has happened this morning? We've heard from His Word. He's been gracious to us today. And if He hadn't done that, He woke you up and that's enough to sing to Him in praise. So we're going to come and we're going to worship the Lord together. Father, we ask now that You'd be glorified as we sing to You. Um, We are going to sing to you in obedience to your word. You tell us to sing. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Exalt his name. To do that together. And so we're going to do that. We're going to do that together. And what I ask that you would so move your people to love you and have a desire to obey you. That they would obey you and do so in spite of any opposition. In spite of any thought that can arise or any reason that we could provide not to. Holy Spirit, I ask that in that obedience you would reward that with abundant, abundant reward. I pray you'd move in power on us. Instruct us, teach us, make application as we sing, give joy to our hearts, so that in all things you're glorified and our joy in you is complete.